Well, if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians, we are in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to this word, make it clear. Lord, we know that we need you to make your word known and useful and beneficial in our lives. So please, would your spirit come and guide and direct. Fill me with your spirit that I would proclaim your word with truth. And Lord, open our ears to hear and soften our hearts to respond to all you have for us today. We pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I'm not a person who really appreciates or likes things that are out of context. Now, I, I do admit that sometimes uh, I will say something that only has context in my thoughts and it can frustrate other people, but that's a whole different story. Nonetheless, what really bugs me, though, most of all, is Bible verses plucked completely out of their surroundings. And you, you, I think you know what I'm talking about, the, the coffee mugs, the t-shirts, the, the eye black, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I understand the intention, and I, I appreciate that, but the lack of care in the use of those scriptures is it's a bit of a frustration, to say the least, for me. And, and often, you know, beyond that, people will, will pluck a verse just because the five words of the verse they think will beat, the, beat somebody in an argument, and they just yank it and wrench it completely out of its context. And here are perhaps my top, here's, here's my top five list of things that I think have been taken out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or Matthew 7, 1, this is a favorite, judge not that you be not judged. Or Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Or 1 John 4, 8, just part of it, God is love. And then I think there's the granddaddy of them all lately, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, obviously, every single one of those is true, but to understand the truth and rightly apply them, you have to know the context, the surroundings. Now, four of those you're going to have to figure out on your own. Sorry, you're going to have to do that work, and I'm just going to deal with one which I think is probably the biggest t-shirt slogan there is, and that's obviously Philippians 4.13. And in the context of Philippians 10 to 13 of chapter 4, there are some very familiar words for us. But also, as I've said, they're quite often words that are misunderstood and taken to mean something that they, they don't really address. See, Paul is moving here into a section of appreciation for the kindness and the, the generosity of the Philippian believers. He's thankful for their partnership with him. 
their partnership in the gospel. And in these four verses, Paul is going to address what I, what I see as two things. He's going to address the Philippian concern as well as his own contentment, as well as his own contentment. Now, contentment, contentment. This is such a need in our world, isn't it? It, it always has been, but I, I think in a lot of ways it seems to be more palpable uh, lately, more easily perceived that contentment is all too often absent in those that we know and in the world around us. And it's not only missing in the world, but it's missing in the church, in believers, and it's missing in my own life more than I want. I, I personally desire to be much more content to not be rattled or frustrated through various life situations. I want to be more and more grounded in who I am in Christ and who He is for me. And honestly, I want that for you all. And this is where I hope that we get this morning, that we see and understand that the context and that we work towards that beauty of contentment in Christ, that we long for that and that we will respond in a way that moves us into greater and greater contentment. Now, to get there, we're going to start with Paul's statement of concern that the Philippian church had. So, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul begins with rejoicing in the section, and he had just commanded the Philippians to do that very thing. In verse 4, if you look up in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so now he demonstrates that he is doing the very thing he commands them to do. He is rejoicing himself. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And he tells us what prompts this expression of great joy. And that the, the, the prompt for this expression is that the Lord has worked concern for him in the hearts of the Philippian church. Now, the word Paul uses for concern is a word that we've actually looked at a good bit. Um, it's throughout this. It's the word, Greek word phreneo, and it's been translated as feel or think or mind or agree. And now here it's as concern. And, and I think you'll be able to see the connection of those. But what Paul is saying is that these Philippians have once again shown their care for him. They're, they're concerned. They have been thinking about Paul and his ministry. Now, I don't think he's saying that they ever stopped being concerned. He, he clarifies that. It's just that they had no opportunity to show it. Uh, you know, some people think that this is actually a chastisement of the Philippian church. I, I, you could take it that way. I don't take it that way. I don't think he's chastising them. I think he's simply rejoicing that the Lord has, has given them opportunity to show their concern, to show their thinking, that it's been perceived and made known by him. But I think this concern does not only reveal their care for him, but there's another aspect that this idea of concern or thinking about uh, conveys that I, that I think is important. It's this, that that word that Paul uses can be thought of in, in reference to their partnership in the gospel, to how they, they work together, how they're a, a team in many ways. Paul uh, Paul exhorted the two women, Euodia and Syntyche, in, earlier in chapter 4, in verse, in verse 2, he said, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's the same word. He's saying, I, I entreat you to, to think the same in the Lord, to be concerned for the same things in the Lord. You see, when that goes away, 
when that uh, in-sync thinking, that in-sync concern goes away, the partnership ceases. They're thinking, um, he's saying that the thinking of the Philippian church has remained the same. They've been focused on the same goal, and it has flourished once again, now to a tangible benefit for Paul. And so, obviously, agreeing together, having that same concern matters. I mean, think about all the bands over time, right? How many bands have split up after a number of years? One of, one of my favorite bands of the, the recent time was the Civil Wars, if any of you know about them. Just this duo, great uh, Americana folk duo, put out two amazing albums, and then they split up. And the interviews are that they just wanted something different. They had different concerns about, like, how much are we going to tour? How much are we not? All these kind of things. And so they were thinking in different ways, and what had to happen? The partnership ceased. They, they weren't thinking the same. They weren't concerned for the same things. You see, to be in partnership, you have to be in harmony with one another, or it doesn't work. And it's this harmony, this partnership, then, that Paul is rejoicing in. We, we even saw that at the very beginning of this letter. In chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he wrote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He thanks God for it. He rejoices in the Lord over their partnership, over their concern for him. And so this concern that they show is that they too desire for the gospel to be proclaimed to all nations. And so they long, because they're not the ones who are set for it, but they long to partner with the one who is the apostle to the Gentiles. They long to partner with Paul however they can. Now, though, as, as Paul wrote this, I think he understood that his words could have been a little bit misinterpreted. And, and he wanted to be clear that his joy did not arise because they were sending him financial aid but truly sprung, his joy actually sprung from their concern, their partnership, their being of one mind. If you look down at verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, not that I seek the gift. I don't seek the gift. So, so what we find in verse 11 is a clarification. He's trying to clear up this misunderstanding. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, they could have maybe taken it as that their friendship was based on the fact that they gave him funds, that they helped him. And so this is not a backhanded way of, of Paul fishing for more help. He's not saying that they have to do more. But I, I think it's true that sometimes we can give thanks with, with a strong undertone of asking for more in that very thanks. Don Carson, he wrote this. He said, perhaps there's nothing tangible in their thanks that you can put your finger on but you feel slightly manipulated anyway. Once in a while, missionary prayer letters sound this way. Very often, the thank you letters from nonprofit organizations sound this way. In any case, Paul takes no chances. He wants to distance himself from all of these possibilities. He wants to make it clear that his thanks is not saying, okay, give me a little more. And so that's why he writes further. He writes further to explain his, his motives and, and how he lives and why it's not his, his rejoicing isn't based on their financial aid. 
So let's look at the whole of Paul's explanation here, starting in verse 11. Again, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul tells the Philippians that whether he received a gift or not, he would be content. That the gift or no gift doesn't matter because he's learned contentment. Now, we've used that word a couple times, but what is contentment? Uh, A basic Merriam-Webster dictionary definition is that contentment is a feeling or showing of satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situations. So, feeling or showing of satisfaction with our possessions, status, or situations. Now, we live in an absolute world of plenty, don't we? There's so much that we have access to, and, and not to discount that there are a number of folks living in poverty, but for the most part, we live in a world of plenty. Just go to the grocery store and try and pick one kind of peanut butter or one cereal. Like, the fact that you have side-to-side aisles, like they're in, it's like the Death Star, like, squeezing in on you with, with cereal. It's everywhere. We have so much. As I think about this, I, I worked on this message in my office at a really nice desk with multiple Bibles open, with an iPad and a computer, and that computer has a Bible program on it that has over 3,000 books that I can access at an instant. I, I, I like that. It's nice. I also have a, a nice home. I have a loving wife and kids. I can walk upstairs or to my downstairs fridge and grab a drink whenever I want. And so, even with that, though, there is always a pull for more. There's always a pull for more. We all feel it in some way, right? We need that, that better this or that, a better car. We need a better house. We need a better pet. We need a better neighborhood or our neighbors. We, we need a, a better job or a better government. Now, that one might be true. But um, we need better weather or better clothes or a better church even. And I could go on and on with what we think we need a better of. And it's a wonder, and yet not really a wonder, why so many people are so discontent. So, how do we find contentment? Well, one approach in our world today is just be a stoic. A good old stoic approach with it. Where the goal of life is simply virtue. You labor not to be governed by those irrational and unnatural nature of your emotions. You do everything you can to be unmoved by, by what's going on around you, those things that are they're not within your power. And so you show no emotion, neither joy nor sorrow. And you focus on your own attitude and character, which simply works to accept the fate of it all. It's going to happen, just deal with it. Folks, that's not a great way to do it. <laughs> That doesn't acknowledge that there's a reality to pain and suffering or the need to be uh, and express exuberant joy or that reality of the difficult and sad things. Stoicism will not bring true contentment. Though I do agree with one thing I read by one of the current Stoic thinkers, I guess, and he wrote something along this line that discontent is the cancer that gnaws away at our happiness discontents, the cancer that gnaws away 
at our happiness. So if stoicism can't bring it, what's the better way? Hope you guys can figure that out. Uh, it's the way of Christ. It's the way that Paul describes. And he tells us that he learned contentment. Um, you know, this wasn't just like a cross the arms and blink and contentment shows up kind of thing. He learned contentment. And to learn is to, to understand something, to, to come to a realization. And, but, but Paul's emphasis in this text is, is not so much on book learning. It's not on what the, 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 the truths necessarily, though those are there, but more learning through practice and experience of life. There's instruction. There is a foundation. It has to be there. And then those truths are solidified in our lives, and we learn contentment in the school of life, in the school of contentment. See, Paul wrote, for I have learned, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. Contentment is learned in life experiences and, and approaching them with a proper perspective, with prayer, with humility, and on and on. And you see, Paul experienced ups and downs in his life. He experienced the highs and the lows, and he certainly saw the value of contentment. I, I dare say Paul has experienced more hardships and frustrations than any of us at least to the degree that he did. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So in case you're unsure that, that's the cat of nine tails, they'd lash them um, only 39 times because they'd say at 40 you'd die. So you got that five times. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And in those things... Paul was in the school of life, the school of contentment. But I think we probably need a better definition of contentment than just what Miriam Webster gives us. And the best definition I have ever come across, and some of you who have been around have heard this, from Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, old Puritan in the great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is his definition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. See, Christian contentment is not resignation to fate. It's not just saying, well, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, whatever but it's a submission and, and delight in God's good, wise, and fatherly disposal in all things. 
That doesn't mean that, that we necessarily have to delight in difficult circumstances themselves, but we delight in God, in His person, and in His working in our lives. The content person continues to trust God, whether they're in plenty or want, whether in danger or ease, whether humiliated or exalted. Many of you know and have been praying for Walt Barr. I prayed for him earlier uh, in the service. And he's a friend of, of a number of us, and he was diagnosed with an aggressive lymphoma uh, after experiencing debilitating pain in his side and in his chest. And he, he's got a tumor wrapped around his spinal column. And um, on top of that, he has melanoma that also needs to be removed from his chest. And I talked to him this week, and it was honestly extremely encouraging. Here's a man and his family going through a very serious illness, stage four. One that had they not found out when they did, it was probably going to be too late. And I didn't hear any complaints from Walt. Not that it's not hard, but his desire through the whole phone call was to have Christ displayed in him. He, he longs to abide in Christ. He, he believes the words of Scripture that blessed are all who take refuge in him. He really believes those words, and he, he truly seems focused on what is of greatest importance in Christ. He, he told me that he still has nurses and doctors who contact him that they've talked to about Jesus in the hospital. And, and so when you remain focused in that way, the circumstances then don't toss you to and fro. It's not because you're stoic, it's because you trust a sovereign God. Because those circumstances cannot change your relationship with your Savior. With Christ, we can be people who, when everything around us is shaking, we don't shake because we know that God Himself is not shaking in worry or caught by surprise with what is going on. I'm reading in the morning, um, part of my reading is through the Westminster Shorter Catechism in my devotional. And the day after talking to Walt uh, came question 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And that made me think of one of the final things that Walt said to me. And he asked, just pray that none of what we're going through will be wasted. It's a man who I think is living content, even in the midst of the fact that he knows something could happen and he won't be with his wife and his daughter and his son. But he's living content, knowing that his good father is caring for him. He wants it all to be for the glory of God and for their good as a family and for those around him. It reminds me a lot of the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 131. Short psalm, beautiful little psalm. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
I don't keep pondering, why me? But I trust the sovereign goodness of my Lord. The school of contentment is found in life. But it's not just found in the hard times of life. It needs to be learned in plenty as well. And I I don't want this to sound flippant at all, but I think sometimes being content in plenty is harder than in suffering. I'm not saying that it's easy for Walt to be content. But when everything is going well, and your bank account looks fine, and you've got, you know, inflation isn't 85% or whatever, and all these kind of things, you know, it's easy to just forget about God and live in the day-to-day as practical atheists. Because, you know, we're often just tempted not to think about God at all. And it, 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 we, we might act somewhat content, but it's not. It's not real content. It's not in God. You know, when we have those, I think of what Paul said in the end of 1 Timothy, as he charged Timothy, he said, charge the people not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Folks, we have to learn contentment in any and every circumstance, in plenty and in want. Paul learned that secret. And here's the good thing. The secret's not hidden. It's something to be revealed and made known, and it is revealed and made known. It's verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We have a God who strengthens His people. Paul talked about being strengthened by Christ a lot and relying on the strength of Christ. Ephesians 6.10, finally, what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to a service. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And folks, that's just Paul. We're called throughout Scripture to, to, to seek to be strengthened by the Lord, to seek His presence, and to seek His strength continually. Psalm 105 tells us, seek His strength continually. It is a constant need. And in verse 13, the, the word strengthen... It's, it's in the present tense, and it's continual. You, you could almost say, I can do all things in Him who constantly is strengthening me, who constantly is strengthening me as His child. But now, here's where. Let's not forget the context of all things. This does not mean necessarily or really at all that I can throw a touchdown pass or make a million dollars, or ask a cute girl on a date. This is in the context of being able to be content in any and every circumstance in life. Now, certainly the principle of Christ strengthening His people is real. 
It absolutely is real. But the context of this verse, I don't think most people would actually want that on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. Because they don't want to know how to go with whatever the Lord gives them. They want, what they, they want their best life now. But the context is learning to be content. But I still ask a question, how? How does this happen? How, how do I set myself up to be content in whatever situation I'm in? I know contentment comes from being strengthened by Christ, but even as I said, we learn it through experience. There has to be some foundation of truth that, that is put into practice. You know, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul wrote that a little bit earlier in this letter. So this is learned by experience, but that experience is forged rightly when it's built on a foundation of truth. So here are some what, what I'd maybe call school supplies for this school of contentment. First, you got to know God. I know that sounds simple, but we should start with the foundation. Without knowing Christ, you will not experience His strength and you will not know true contentment. So if you don't know Him, turn to Him in repentance and faith. If you do know Him, turn to Him in repentance and faith. That's the walk of a believer. Repent and believe over and over. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord through His Word, through worship, through fellowship. And as you see more and more of God and His character, you will have the tools to begin to grow in trust and, and to, to rest in His providence. And then second, realize Realize this, contentment is not an unreasonable goal. Charles Simeon, a great pastor, wrote this. He says, tell me then, possessing as you do, so he's writing to believers, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and looking forward as you do to the speedy and everlasting enjoyment of all the glory of heaven, does it become you to regard as of any great importance the things of time and sense? See the apostle in prison, his feet fastened in the stocks, and his back torn with scourges, and yet his soul is so full of joy that he is singing praises to God at midnight. And will you not be ashamed to complain of your minor sorrows? Or rather, see the Son of God himself impoverishing himself to enrich you and welcoming death itself in order to advance you to everlasting life. See him, I dare say, enduring to the end when, if it had pleased him, more than 12 legions of angels would have come to rescue him from his sufferings. And will you complain of anything which you may suffer for him? Look to our Savior. Folks, contentment is not an extreme for believers. Contentment is not living the radical Christian life. It's living the Christian life. That's what we're called to. We have so much in Christ, and if we know what is true of us in Christ, how could we not at least be moving towards greater contentment, no matter whether we're in plenty and need? And just think of the blessing to be content in Christ. Rest is drastically better than restlessness and anxiety and worry. How many of you have ever been frustrated laying down and you can't fall asleep because you're restless? 
or every now and then I get the restless leg syndrome, and I'm like, my leg just wants to move and do something. I'm like, stop it so I can sleep. I don't like that restlessness, but when I lay down and my head hits the pillow and I don't remember anything else until my alarm, it's lovely. Rest is good. There's blessing of resting content. And as you rest, you will shine forth the hope of the gospel. You'll, you'll shine forth the hope of life in Christ. Do you, people will, people will sow. Can, can you give me the reason for the hope that you have? How you can be content in this? You will honor the greatness of your Lord as you rest in Him. And others are going to see that. And they're going to want to know what you have. Now, I know there's a lot more that we could look at of we need to be, stuff that Paul has already written in this letter, humility, self-denial, learn to be more and more grateful in all things and pursue Christ and, and be prayerful because we know that the, the Spirit of Christ has to work in us the strength and contentment of Christ. The, the truth is, though this is not an extreme class in the school of contentment, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one because we're weak. We're weak and we fail. And we're, we won't be content apart from Christ, not truly content. But listen, that weakness is actually not our problem. We need to learn to admit that we're weak. Just listen in closing to these last words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And when I learn to be weak, we'll learn to be content. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word today. And Lord, do work in each of us contentment. Help us to know the strength of our Savior in all things. Would Christ live in us? day by day, moment by moment. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is. Be glorified in how we respond. In Christ's name we pray, amen.